Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. So we are, we're returning to the Sermon on the Mount, a series we began back in April called The Good Life. Uh, we did seven talks. I looked back at them and uh, we explained the Beatitudes and sort of oriented ourselves around what life in association with Jesus means. And um, I was thinking, man, it would be so good to be able to just, why don't I just do those seven talks over again to catch everybody up? Well, I'm obviously not going to do that, but I have decided just to write a paragraph just to try to sum all of those up. Uh, something maybe you want me to do every week. Just sum it up. But, but here's maybe how to sum that up and get us going again today. So Jesus came and claimed that he was the promised king of the universe, of all reality, and boldly and compassionately announced that God through him has extended an invitation to any and all without qualification, the have-nots, the oppressed, the self-doubters, the unworthy, spiritually and socially, that you could have the good fortune of entering into God's full world and coming under his rule, and in obeying him, have your life take on the substance, the quality of eternity. And be assured of living with him forever and, and knowing that no thing, no person, no circumstance could ever put your life or that hope in jeopardy. That's the summary. Now, this message came to thousands of people who sat on a hill, who for one reason or another were categorically dismissed by the religious, moral, social, and cultural standards of the day. Connection to God was for the special. So the poor, for instance, economically and spiritually, were not blessed in that culture. And maybe to give you a visual that will help us throughout the rest of the sermon, Luke chapter 14, and maybe throughout the rest of the whole sermon, I mean the series. Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 14. He's sitting around a table with some people, and they were eating, and he makes this statement, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then he tells a story about a man who gave a great banquet and invited lots of people to it. And when it was finally prepared, he asked his servants to go get, the, get everybody in. Well, the ones who had been invited had excuses. And the text says that they all began to you know, give the reasons why they're not coming. One guy bought a field, and he's got to go out and deal with that. Uh, he said, please excuse me, but I can't be there. And then someone else got married, and they couldn't do it. Someone else bought five yoke of oxen and had to deal with those 
things. And so the master gets the report back that they're not coming. And so he says to a servant, I want you to go quickly out to the streets, the lanes in the city. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. So the servant came back and he said, sir, we've done that, and it looks like we've still got plenty of room in here. And so the master says, well, go out further. Go to the highways, the hedges, and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who were invited shall taste my banquet. The Beatitudes are the people who live in the highways and the hedges. They live on the fringe. Just outside, seemingly, of the range of God's grace and reach. And yet they are invited to enjoy this lavish spread. And I want you to just contrast something I did in my head was just imagine the conversation of this last group of people who were sitting around tables versus the ones that were initially invited. Had the group that were initially invited come, they would have had a lot of things on their mind. They would have been dealers. They would have been hobnobbing. They would have been making connections and associations. You could see them. You could just... They'd be sizing people up and making deals. I can imagine one guy saying, you know, Charles, please don't tell me that's the suit you wore to last year's banquet. Please don't tell me that. You know, and and if you've ever, uh, can you imagine any of these guests being there at the same time of these people? Because the last guests would have a completely different dynamic. Uh, there would be joy and there would be amazement. They would be humble. This last group would have been putting rolls in their pockets, right? Taking home anything they could that wouldn't know which fork to use when. It's that group. They would have been very humble, but to imagine those groups mixing would have been crazy. I, I thought, I've told you this before, I think. Uh, it's been a while, though. Um, when Gail and I got married, we went on this cruise, and about midweek, midweek through the cruise, we got this special invitation to sit at the captain's table that night. Now, we had been to dinner a few nights now, and the captain's table wasn't inconspicuous. It sat in a certain spot, and there was about 10 people sat around it each night. It appeared to be a kind of a special honor. And so we were sort of dumbfounded by, what are we getting invited for? Well, I didn't know this, but the gal, at the time I was working for uh, Miami Vice, and the lady who made all the arrangements for the actors to fly in and out, you know, each week, you know, she's the one who made the arrangements for our cruise. She helped me out with that. Well, she told them I was on Miami Vice MI, uh, MV, or, you know, VIP. A Miami Vice VIP. Well, when I got to the table, 23-year-old kid, wide-eyed, perm in my hair. We were sitting around a table with 10 people who were much older than us, uh, looked like they had much more to bring to the table. And the captain was Italian, and he didn't speak any English. And this translator's all night trying to figure out how, how to help him understand why perm boy over here is sitting at this table, because he's not a VIP. And I could feel it. If it wasn't for Gail, I'd have left it. 
because it was a horrible feeling to feel that way. Uh, the guests sitting with Jesus, they would have been humble and grateful, and there wouldn't have been any comparing. They would have been amazed that they got to be there. And, of course, sitting with Jesus would have changed their lives forever. There would be this complete turnaround and overhaul. This night would be unforgettable. And so this is the opportunity that Christ has made available. And when Jesus is done inviting these people on this, on this day in this sermon, um, he says, blessed are those, this is the last category of people that get invited. They're the ones who are persecuted for righteousness. You know, all of us have experienced to some degree you do the right thing, but you end up paying a price for it somehow. It just ends up coming back on you in a way that you go, I don't know. It makes you wonder if it's even worth it. Well, that was this category of people, and that's a horrible category to be in. And Jesus is saying, hey, come into the kingdom. And so it's the last group. And it's the last group because the, whatever it is Jesus is going to say next, it's important that what he says grows out of this group of people. And if you're, if you're helping Jesus with the sermon, like if it was a homiletics class, you would have said, Jesus, I would put the persecution somewhere in the middle so we get past that so that you can go into this sermon with something positive. Persecution is not the thing to start with. Right? Let's start with blessed are the poor. Let's end with blessed are the poor so that you could go into talking about how great it's going to be to be in the kingdom. That's not what Jesus does. He shifts. It's an incredible shift. He goes from the category of people, those. Look around. There's categories of people here on this hill. But he changes it to the second person here, and there's a shift to you, as if Jesus is saying, if any of you are willing to come off this mountainside and follow me and become part of my group, you. Now I'm talking to those of you who want in. And yes, you've, many of you have done the right thing and paid for it. Well, I'm going to tell you, not going to get much better following me. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, say all kinds of evil things about you and lie about you. It's an incredible shift here. It goes from this category to the personal. And you say, why? Why would this be the first thing he says to anyone who says, okay, I'll follow? And the message is simply this. You people who sit on this hill, who feel like you have no impact on life, like, you know, you suffer for nothing, I'm going to change that. I'm going to give you impact. You're going to have an impact. You're going to make a difference. Uh, I will tell you what you won't be, hillsiders. You won't be a secret group of people who sit out in the wilderness with me and we just do weird stuff. That's not what we're going to be about. I'm going to send you right back into that town that you've been ostracized from. And I promise you this, your life will count 
and it will make a difference. That's what he's saying. And you'll be two things. You'll be offensive and you'll be attractive. We've talked about this. Jesus says it. You'll be offensive, blessed are you, when people insult you. Okay, you'll be offensive. But then you'll also be attractive. Because he's going to say right after that, you're the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. And notice again, this is emphatic in these verses. We'll talk about that next week. You. Because of what happens to you, you will make a difference. I'm about to transform your life in a way that you will never be the same, and you'll be salt and light. Salt and light are very modest metaphors, everyday kinds of metaphors, nothing really spectacular. They're everyday things. You need them. Just simple things you don't think about all the time. Uh, But because I'm going to change you and everything about you, your whole life will be different. Night and day. Nighttime or daytime, you're going to be different. You're going to be salt in the day and light at night. Everything about your life will be different. Everyone you've met, all your experiences, your, your whole life, everyday stuff. Wherever you go, whatever you do, whatever you're a part of, maybe you did get married. Maybe you did buy five oxen. Maybe you did have a field. But it's still going to change the way you do it all. And this group, no question, is sitting there saying, you're going to use us? You picked a real sorry bunch to be all that. We're worthless, unseen, unheard. We have no voice, no presence, no clout, nothing to offer. Um, If you haven't seen the movie of the 12 Mighty Orphans or read the book, it's really quite an amazing story if you give significant thought to it, especially if you're a sports fan at all. Uh, Twelve kids from an orphanage make up a football team, a serious football team, who have never played before, who have all kinds of personal issues and obstacles to deal with, who have no equipment, no ball, shoes, field, or uniforms. They don't have a coaching staff, no resources, undersized, outmanned in Texas. You, are you, do you know what Texas football is? Do you know what Texas high school football is? It's insane. And believe it or not, we had powerhouses back in the 30s. Highland Park was a powerhouse in other schools. To get to the state champion at any time since then is still phenomenal. It is no small feat in Texas to take 12 people, 12 messed up kids who've never played the game and become what they became, go to a state championship and almost win it is... uh, out of this world. Well, you know, they play Highland Park in the semifinals. Still was, at the time, one of the wealthy schools in Dallas area. And they were a powerhouse football team. There's a chapter in the book, if you happen to read that, called The Day of the Pauper. It's the Day of the Pauper, and it describes the game against Highland Park. And it really captures... uh, the differences in, in resources and attitudes 
compared to this group coming into this group. And so a writer for the Fort Worth Press that day, that day, wrote this on game day. Outweighed something like 25 pounds to the man. Decided underdogs, according to most of the bookmakers, coach Rusty Russell's gallant little band will tackle the huge Highland Park Scots at Ownby Stadium. Kickoff will be at 2.30 with thousands of the Mighty Might supporters following the Masons down the pipe. Highland Park coach Redmond Hume, never a modest footballer, is convinced his team can do whatever it wants to do against the Mites. And he is confident in the physical superiority of his lads. The odds against the Mighty Mites are almost overwhelming. That's exactly the truth. And this group pulls up in this beat-up blue truck, bus, with a small group of guys endure the offensive, look, the offensive looks, the sort of looking down your eyes, the crude comments, stupid orphans, and proceed to play a brand of football that we are still playing today. And what was amazing to me, against all odds, they beat this team, make it to the finals. They had irritated, humiliated, and offended lots of people. But they also won the hearts of many people at the same time. People were writing in fan mail from New York and all across the country because they had captured, this group had captured people's hearts. Even after they beat Highland Park, the wealthy parents bought jerseys for the team afterwards because they'd won their hearts. And here's the thing about the Mighty Mites that I think is true about the folks that were sitting on the hill that day that Jesus described with eight Beatitudes. You won't be impressive, but you will be offensive and attractive. You won't be impressive, though. So let's talk about the offensiveness for just a second, and next week we'll spend some time on the attractiveness. Verses 11 and 12 speak to the offensiveness, and they're pretty significant here. Uh, Blessed are you when people insult you. There's the first one. That's sort of a verbal attack. And then you have persecute, which could be anything. It could take, they could hurt you, people you love, or things you have, take them. It's sort of the gamut of all of it. And then on top of that, you, you could be spoken falsely of. They'll say, any, they'll say literally anything. It doesn't have to be true to make you look bad. And if you've ever been falsely accused or somebody says something that truly isn't true, and you can't get other people convinced that it's a horrible feeling. It's just hard. And so you have this sort of triple threat to this group of people, these little hillsiders. Hey, have you suffered for doing wrong sometime? <laughs> Come follow me. I got three massive threats to throw at you that's going to happen if you follow me. And you have this triple threat. And here's the thing that's really great is here's that second person again where Jesus now goes from the 
categories of people sitting on the crowd to identifying the mighty mites who are actually going to follow him. And he calls them you, and for the first time in the sermon, refers to himself personally. Me. I will be at the center of this whole thing. And it's the kind of thing you can't help but notice. And so I put it like this so that you could see it. You see it? Can you see that? Okay. Um, And here's what he's basically saying. I will be the center of your life. Your life will be centered around me. It won't be about you anymore. I've categorized you all. I've called you into my banquet. And now my life will be the center of yours. That's discipleship. Your beliefs will change. Your loves will change. Your hopes will change. They won't look like others. And they won't look like you used to have. You will not view your life the way you used to. You will not live it out of the old identity that you had and your old experiences which have hurt you and crushed you and dictated your life up to now. That won't happen anymore. They are not what define you. You won't live out of the same resources. I'm going to give you all kinds of different resources. It will now be me. And something strange will happen. Something very strange will happen. You'll have a strange kind of confidence because it isn't about you. But you'll also be humble because it isn't about you. And so you'll be bold, but you'll also be graceful. That's what happens to people who come to know Christ. And it will at times bring out the worst in others. People who live out of all those other things, they live for the other things. They live for themselves and out of those things. You will make them sometimes, you will drive them nuts because you will, they will make you question values and meaning in life by the way you do your life. They'll wonder what is really right and wrong every now and then. Sometimes you'll bug them simply, sometimes you'll bug them seriously. But you can't live the life that, with me in it and not at times be offensive and not at times be incredibly attractive. They will both be true. To put it maybe the simplest, at least in my own experience that I've had, if you've been around people who aren't believers for any length of time, maybe you play golf or you, you hang out with people for a while and they find out you're a Christian and they, and they, and they, uh, and they cuss and every time they cuss, they want to apologize to you because just because you're there. Not because you've made a list of cuss words that you will not tolerate today. Just because you're there. You didn't say, hey, no cussing. They just feel it. I can't tell you how many times I've said, cuss all you want. Go ahead and cuss. You don't have to feel bad. You don't have to feel bad. But you do. Because it, it, it just makes you feel bad. It's not... This doesn't count as like true persecution or harassment to you. It's a simple reality that when you're around, I'm thinking about things I don't normally think about. Values, right and wrong. What's good? What isn't good? 
What do I believe? Sometimes they're deeping, deeper meanings. In fact, when I did work on Miami Vice, I had a guy who was an atheist, and all he ever wanted to do when he was around me was talk about God. I was like, you know, you're an atheist. This is all you ever want to talk about. We used to have fun with that. He just couldn't let it go. There was just something about beliefs and values that when a believer is around and, and present and distinct, it just raises those kinds of issues. And so it brings on the possibility of insults, abuse, and lies. Because, because sometimes you set people off and they become hostile to these things. Now, these things, insults, abuses, and lies, these are devastating things. These are not the kinds of things anybody on that hill would have wanted, right? Uh, they're the kind of things you would avoid. Uh, and which is why verse 12 is even more ridiculous and outlandish, and I can't imagine how it landed on those hillsiders, let alone us as hillsiders. And that is, um, well, let's, let's look at the verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. Now, it was hard enough to hear the triple threat. Here comes this double command, because that's what these are. These are commands. When that happens to you, when you do offend someone great enough for them to lash out at you in any one of these categories, in any way, here's the correct response. Rejoice, and not just rejoice. You've heard that word many times. Be glad. And Matthew uses this word only one time and right here. And you better believe it was the right time to use it at the beginning of this sermon, saying maybe the hardest thing that gets said in here. Be glad. This is kind of, feels a little over the top. But this is kind of essentially what we talked about last week and why we started the year with Psalm 126 and how we sort of connected your emotions, your highs and lows to mission. Because if you're on mission, if you're on mission and you've joined Jesus and you believe other people should know him, you're going to at times be offensive because you care about people. And you're also going to be attractive sometimes, but you'll be on mission, and it will affect how you feel. And there will be a kind of rejoicing that comes, and be glad is exceedingly glad. It's the kind of thing that goes, yeah, baby. Ever go, yeah, baby. That's essentially the impact of that, be glad. It will be, yeah, baby, I'm making a difference. Yeah, baby, my life really is distinct. Yeah. That's what he's saying. something about this new life. There's something about this new relationship with Christ, this new hope that then dictates your highs and lows. And the reason is, is because you realize you have something so indestructible, so valuable that it can literally stand the loss of anything. And when you realize that, you're like, yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. That's what he's saying. And we talked about this in First Peter a little bit. Because Peter tries to bring this 
message. First Peter tries to bring the message to the church because they're, they're literally suffering at every level. From their own homes all the way to political uh, authorities. And everything in between, culturally, political, politically, socially, they're receiving all kinds of opposition. And Peter is trying to help this church function in the midst of that and give them perspective. And what does he say to them? In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while you're grieving. You're rejoicing and grieving. Yes, it hurts. But there is something deep. Why? Because your, your, your faith is being tested and proven to be genuine, Peter says. And it's more precious than gold, your faith, which perishes when it's tested by fire. You're supposed to test gold. But at the end of the day, gold perishes. It won't last forever. But your faith will be tested, and it will last forever. And Peter says, anything that happens to you, that helps your faith emerge as solid and the most important thing because the last thing you want to lose is your faith. You can lose your gold. Don't lose your faith. Your genuine faith is the most valuable possession that you have. And that is what makes you rejoice because you know it was real because you took heat for it. And so he says, It will, be, it will result in praise and glory and honor. All right? It's the most valuable possession you have, and when it's found to be genuine, it brings joy. And Jesus kind of saying, you'll find that I'm offering you a life that's worth, maybe you lose face. Maybe you lose things. Maybe even your life. And even now, as we sit here without real physical threat, ask yourself, because I think it's the application point. Am I more fearful of the possibility of actually having something like that happen to me or of losing my faith? That's what he's saying. Which one scares me more? You ever thought to yourself, I read a lot of things on persecution. Like I'd, anything that comes to me, sometimes I get emails from different um, sources and things will come across my desk some way, shape, or form that describes the suffering on any given day that's happening around the world to Christians. And uh, I can't help but read it. Something draws me to it. And every time I'm just dumbfounded by the price many Christians are paying. And, uh, and if you've read them, I wonder if you've ever said, oh, that would be the moment I lose my faith. I couldn't have done that. I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. And you wonder, what's going on in the mind of someone willing to give up their own head or their own child. What do they know that I don't know? It's 
got to be something amazing. Now, Jesus tries to give us two reasons why people would want to come off that mountain and join these, this crazy-sounding group. And I'm just going to highlight them real quick for you. The first one's theological. He literally says, because your reward is great in heaven. That's the first one, your reward. And Matthew uses the word reward about ten times in his entire book, but six times in the Sermon on the Mount. And what's, you, what's usually striking about it is the, there's, there's no precision. Like, you don't have a specific reward. It just says reward. Like in Matthew 6 when he says, when you pray in secret, your Father will reward you. And you're like, oh, what am I going to get? He doesn't tell you. And it's a little frustrating, but there's a reason for it. <laughs> because this isn't the kind of thing you say to someone, well, if you do this for me, I'll do it for you. It's got to mean more than that. Well, if I want to get this, I'm going to have to do this. It's not that game. God doesn't play that reward game. He's got to be offering something more significant. More than an attaboy or some earning kind of thing. And what we, what we see in the reward, like you see it in Matthew 6, what kind of reward comes to people who are spending time alone with God privately? Well, there's got to be some kind of goodness and favor and the presence of God that overflows toward us. It's the natural, the, the natural result of being alone with God. Knowing you're relating well to him and feeling it. It's sort of a generosity that comes to you. Certainly for people who, have, who suffer for knowing him and loving him and living for him, there's a special something that overflows from God to them. C.S. Lewis, in my favorite thing that he's ever written, which is not easy to say, the weight of glory, talks about this a little bit. And he says this, don't be troubled when you hear the promise that there's a reward for the Christian life uh, like it's a mercenary affair. And here's what he means by this. There's different kinds of rewards. You'll, you'll relate to this. There's the reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it. Uh, and is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. For instance, money is not the natural reward for love. That is why we call a man a mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. Because money's, money's, money's not the natural reward that comes from love. And he says... Marriage is the proper reward for a real lover. And he's not mercenary for desiring it. In other words, the reward inherent in the, in the act of doing whatever it is you're doing, is it's okay to desire that. And if, if C.S. Lewis is right here, then the reward is just even greater faith and stronger connection to God 
That is the reward in and of itself. That would be the greatest thing, the most natural thing, that my relationship with God is so strong, so healthy, so wonderful that I'm willing to suffer for it. And in suffering for it, I get more of the thing that I, that I had, you see? That's the reward. It's just better. In fact, he says, it's just insofar as he approaches the reward that he becomes able to desire it for its own sake. All of a sudden, I'm wanting the reward, not because I want some gift, but because the reward is inherent in the very thing I'm enjoying anyway. It's profound. And then he says, there's a power of wanting that reward inherent in the relationship already. That is itself a preliminary reward. And what he means by that is, if you even want to want that, you're already being rewarded. <laughs> because most of us aren't wanting that all the time. And if you really want a reward, start wanting that. That's preliminary. Then get it and endure. And then all of a sudden, you get more of the thing. It's just phenomenal. I, I, it's profound what he says. And so at the end of the day, you just say, may I desire you as the ultimate reward such that I view an inhospitable environment as that which can only increase my desire and result in more joy. Oh my goodness, he'll say. That's a lunch conversation. Imagine that whatever God gives you, you deemed it worthy enough to pay a high price for it, only to want it more and it become more real to you and more valuable. That's why Jesus can tell this group when they hurt, boy, good job, way to go. That's what you'll do in your spirit at the deepest level. That's what he's saying. And then his second one is this. Uh, well, they persecuted the prophets in the same way. This is one of those things, well, your brother got it, you're getting it too. It didn't, it's like, I don't know how much motivation is in that. Okay? Yeah, well... That's what they got. That's what you're getting. That never worked on any of us. But here's what Jesus is saying. So the first one's sort of theological. In heaven, your reward will be more of the thing you loved and craved here with Christ. You'll just have more of it. It's theological. This one's historical. He takes them back in history. And the first one, it's, let me take you to heaven and the wonder you're going to feel there. And then now, let me take you back into the past and the history and this is all to try to help this group understand why they're going to be offensive and how to survive it. And I pictured it like this. This really helped me. So here they are on this hill, and they're about to join him, and he's connecting them to eternity and history, which he's got to do in order to convince these people to suffer at the level that he's asking them to suffer. This is the past. This is the future. And there you are right in the middle of this incredible redemptive story that has a past that we can assess 
and a future that we can hope for. Your predecessors and your hope all go into helping you grasp the value of what you have. And that's what he's saying. The opposition is not new or accidental. It's in line with the whole plan. And Christ is putting us on par with the prophets. No one on that hill would have considered themselves worthy of being called a prophet. Anything but a prophet. We look back on the prophets as heroic, just like they did. But the reason we can do that is because now we have perspective. The Messiah, the message, and the Messiah have shown up just like the prophet said. We look at the prophets and go, you were absolutely right about what you did. Jeremiah, it was worth them sticking you in that well of dung. It was worth it. Because now we see it's all come to fruition. Even though back then, you know, the prophets retreated. They were ignored, they were abused, they were belittled and often killed. And Jesus is saying, nah, they were right. Redemption played out just like they spoke it. And now I'm in line with that. And as sure as the past of this redemptive story is, I can be one of those voices. I will have the hope that was spoken as well. Well, it's a profound truth, and I'm like you, uh, struggle to understand just how to relate to the kind of persecution going on in the world that I hear about, read about every day. Um, and it's hard sometimes to know exactly the value of my faith because, you've, like I said, you've probably said, I don't know if my faith could survive that. Which is understandable when you're here and distant from it. You've never experienced it before. It's truly. But sometimes you don't really know the value of your own faith because of it. Because the fire has never been lit under it for you to see, you know. And so what do we do then? What are we supposed to do with this then? Well, I think there's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you three things to consider right now about your life. Practically speaking. First one, and I'll give them to you quick. Am I even living the kind of life that would cause offense? Create problems in my world if I were honest about who I am and the difference he's made in my life? Would I even, if I picked up, I wonder if God picked me up and stuck me in China or stuck me in, in, in one of these places in the world where suffering is occurring on believers' lives, would my life be distinct enough to even catch anyone like, like a cult or another religion or a pagan's attention? Or would I just be under the radar there just like I am here? That would be the first question. Will it attract any attention when the time comes? Second one is, do I really consider my, my faith valuable enough that I could withstand any loss? 
a hard question. But if you deduce, like Peter does, that you have no more valuable possession, what would it really mean to lose that? To find out in the heat that your faith wasn't real anyway. I don't know what's scarier. Then the third thing is, do I long for that reward? Do I really want this deeper connection to Christ that I'm willing to endure anything to get it? There's another convicting question that just came to me. And that would at least, can I underscore this as I just wrap, this this is my last statement about this. I really want to underscore it. At least it means for us that rather than resent the cultural, social, political opposition that we're feeling in the world, that we welcome the opportunity to reflect Christ and to perhaps make it long for us more intently than we do. Could we possibly look at it the way Jesus is telling us to look at it? The opposition that you despise, that you, that makes you angry and resentful. I'm trying to get you to rejoice and go, yeah, that boy, yeah. Is that possible? Well, if you're interested in a life like that, let me just say a life that's durable, could withstand anything, any earthly loss. We have lots of people in our day and in our history that have proven that to be true. Is it possible that I could, you ask maybe, could I have a life like that? Could, I, would, could my life really be that valuable and durable? Well, remember what Christ said. I've made all the arrangements to secure a place for you at the table. Your salvation. Let me end with this. I, last Saturday, Gail and I went to uh, a play that Emmy Hodges was in. She is playing the witch in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe at the Artisan in Northwoodson Hills. And so we went to, to watch it, and of course the story is one of my all-time favorite stories. And uh, if you know it, the kids go into Narnia, and Edmund, one of the brothers, uh, one of the kids, there's four of them, uh, is lured by the witch, which Emmy plays, and she plays it really, really well. Um, she's lured, he's lured into her captivity, really, by, by her treats. And so he's off, and the other kids who are kind of running around trying to figure out what to do end up running into Aslan, who's the lion, who is the Christ figure. And they get to know him, and they're like overwhelmed. I mean, this is incredible. Uh, And uh, the witch is now scheming to destroy all of human life that has entered into Narnia. And unbeknownst to the kids, Aslan is scheming to redeem Narnia, to restore it and save them all. And at one point, Peter... Edmund's brother looks at Aslan 
And he says this, he asks, can anything be done to rescue Edmund? Can anything be done to get him out of her clutches? And Aslan's reply, you probably know it if you've read it. Aslan says, all shall be done. All shall be done. This little kid in the lion's mane (laughs) delivers that line, and it's like, oh, oh, that's it. Everything's been done. You don't have to do anything. You can come from anywhere. That's the beauty of it. What seems impossible, entirely unlikely, that there's a place at the table for you because of what he's done. All has been done to make this life available to us. Just bow your heads. Uh, well, Lord, we're grateful for this truth. So much to it deserves some of our reflection till we meet again about our faith, its value, the distinctiveness of our lives, and what you've done to make it possible. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.